1: the
2: score anthony heron score football analyst
3: david montgomery struggled with early in his career there's a lot of dancing in the backfield he's gotten more and more effective throughout his time with the bears at getting downhill
2: former nfl defensive lineman and iowa hawkeye
3: and as long as that ends up being the case hey bishop i'm still on the radio
4: no, sorry, all right. He can hang. Paw Patrol. I need another Paw Patrol.
3: Okay, I'm going to come turn <laughs> it on in <laughs> just yeah,
4: a couple get of get moments,
2: all right? Big and Heron. Mr. Hedden, I want to compliment you. You're doing a fine job. With Bernstein and Holmes on the score.
4: Let's talk football with Anthony Heron, as we do on Bears Mondays. And this isn't a Monday, and there wasn't a Bears game, but it is certainly a football post-weekend Tuesday, if nothing else. Anthony Heron's on Twitter, at Big and Heron, football analyst for Fox 32, Big Ten Network, and The Score. And he is here on The Score hotline, presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. And he's on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Chicago 670, The Score. Anthony, what's happening, man? What's your biggest takeaway, your strongest thoughts, Thought from a wild weekend of football,
3: Well, we went and saw the the movie Babylon the other day, and I'm sitting there watching it, and the thing is <laughs> I mean unbearably long, and it just my mind wandered multiple times, just watching Brad Pitt, and his face isn't moving he's completely expressionless in almost every scene. I'm like, man. Lawrence and Dad just think this dude is a great thespian. I'm just I'm looking for it. I'm hoping for it. I, like I'm rooting for Brad Pitt in the scenes in Babylon as my back is tightening up because the movie is about 18 hours long. I'm stretching my hamstrings in between scenes and I'm just waiting. Like there's a few emotional moments, there's a few dramatic moments, there's some comedic moments. Like I I really like the guy. Like I've done some charity work with some companies that he's run before. He seems like a great human. He's just he's he's a very regular actor and I just that that was my big takeaway from the weekend guys.
5: Well, well look, I, I look at it this way. My man. I <laughs> I, I I looked at, I when I saw the previews for it, I was like, "Nah, this ain't it."
3: There's a lot going on there, man. I've There's got the old,
5: "I'm not interested sign" hung up on that one <laughs> because I cuz I
4: saw the I saw the trailer in the theater. Uh, and I remember I turned toward Beth and I'm like, you could pay me enough to say st- it. Just it looks like a bloated,
3: overwrought nightmare of a film. That is that is actually that should have been the tagline for the movie. That is exactly <laughs> how it should have been marketed because that would have been the most accurate way to go about it. And I, I didn't realize going into it, I love going into. You know, cause it's kind of a cinematic experience with very little knowledge about the movie. You know, maybe if if I'm to the point where if I see a preview, I'll cut the preview short because I don't want to know a whole lot other than who's in it. Give me kind of a general sense of the plot. So that was how I went into to Babylon, and then we got done watching the movie. We're getting up, walking out, me and my wife, and I'm talking, man that that was basically like. Like if La La Land was completely awful and ten times as long yes. and wasn't a musical. And she told me it was the same dude who made La La Land. I had no idea. Oh. It was La La Land guy.
4: Yep. Damien Chazelle, right?
3: Yeah, and it's basically this this big love story to Hollywood, which, you know, I, I don't mind that in concept. It was just bad. It was really bad and gratuitous and the plot didn't really shape together very well. And You had Brad Pitt, his face not moving, which I found distracting, as I often do. Was he Botoxed? Uh, No, no. His he's just an expressionless actor. He doesn't need Botox. He's an attractive man. He just he doesn't express himself visually very well.
5: It's funny, like because very handsome. it's almost as if I'd rather just watch him feel uncomfortable as black women flirt with him at award shows.
3: <laughs> that's Cause, a preferable role.
5: Because that's exactly what was going on. It was it the Critics' Choice Awards? At like, the Globes. At, at the Globes. Globes. A yeah. Queen, to, Queen to Brunson, Regina Hall out here right. shooting her shot. <laughs> like it was like wow like I guess they had Brad like real close to the stage and he was very <laughs> distracting for every black woman who won an award you so,
3: get a kick out of that man when you have you know celebrities famous people rich people and they're still like you know geeking out about Brad Pitt being in the front row and, and shooting their shot whether comedically or seriously whatever it may be you know you do you do see the tears of celebrity that are there where you know you got rich and famous and then you got the one the percenters of the one percenters and, and there are certain people who occupy that territory. Well,
4: speaking of matinee idols who may or may not have had work done to their face, what did you make of Tom Brady last night?
3: Ah, yes. This was a great great segue by the way. I, I did uh coming out of last night's game, that's the most certain I've been in years that Tom Brady ain't done playing football. Like that press conference afterwards, they they you know, and media did what they could do to try to pepper him with a few questions, most of them very respectful and looking for timelines and everything else. And he, he didn't seem – he didn't necessarily seem exhausted to me. He seemed exasperated. Mm. He really felt like he could have played better. The team could have played better. He seems to me to, to be a guy who, who just – the presence he had at the mic was feeling like he has plenty left in the tank and i've been operating for a few years now under this impression that he verbalized years ago saying i want to play till i'm 45 i think i'll be physically capable of doing that and so after last off season even where you know before knowing the strife that was going on in his in his personal life with his marriage I'm like, all right, so his his wife Wants him to step away, but he obviously does not. But you know what? You, you got your Super Bowl already. You had another quality season in Tampa after that. The team is obviously crumbling around you, and you are aging. A pit. Well, in theory, you should be aging at this point as well. He, he may step away. That was even after last season, let alone thinking he might ride off into the sunset or, or, you know, sail off into the sunset or whatever when he actually won the Super Bowl after that first year in Tampa. Last night, it wasn't even just about – that's not the way he wants to go out. He just seems like a dude who thinks he can still play, and to a certain extent, in very particular sets of circumstances, he can. And I, just, I think Tom Brady's not done.
5: Okay, because he sure looked done uh, for a big portion yeah, of that game. Yeah, but they're
3: usually the last one to know, though, Lo. You know that.
5: Yeah, it's true. I, I, I want to go back to Saturday. Walk me through what it was like for you to watch the Chargers-Jacksonville game
3: it was uh it was quite the quite the wild emotional ride because you get to to halftime of the game and trying to in a way kind of convince yourself that that there's still a game to be had here and, you know the the comebacks and the broadcast crew does does a nice job painting those pictures and and everyone on the LA side of things is new to that capacity a new head coach and a a young QB and new coordinators and you know everything around the Chargers seem to be a team that is ascending and has the opportunity to capitalize on that and everything in the first half kind of coalesced to them being able to have this huge lead and Jacksonville's just kind of lurking there and and everything I've seen of, of Trevor Lawrence and he's one of these guys who I've been covering him since he was in high school in the All-American Bowl and you know following his college career closely of course here early in the NFL, and like I've talked to you guys about. He, he's the one quarterback in that draft cycle that, that I viewed beyond, you know, beyond Justin Fields as a QB prospect. Part of it is the, the tangible of just he does have kind of that true point guard mentality, and that was a part of what Asante Samuel Jr. was capitalizing on, just knowing that you know, he had a pass rush that was able to do enough, and Trevor Lawrence was going to try to get the ball out of his hands quickly and in rhythm, and you saw after that first interception... Then Asante Samuel Jr. is doing just like his pops. He's jumping routes. He's taking advantage of a QB who he knows wants to get the football out of his hands in a rapid manner. And as he jumps routes, Trevor Lawrence just wasn't, wasn't doing a whole lot about it. He's, he's putting his receivers in position to fight for footballs. And Asante Samuel Jr. was winning those battles over and over again. And in the second half, Trevor Lawrence still he came out unfazed. And undaunted, and that's who he's always been. That's what he was as a high school QB who threw some interceptions at times. That's who he was as a college QB who was imperfect for quarters or halves at times. And in a young pro career, he has just continued to fire away and be undaunted by that. Nobody wants to throw an interception, but some guys are affected by it in an enhanced manner when they throw them. And there are certain coaches who have quarterbacks who they feel like they need to protect their QB in those circumstances when they're off early in a game, and especially in the heat of a playoff game like that. And credit to Doug Peterson. I mean, I guess it gets to a certain point where you're down several scores. If you're going to have a chance to come back, you got to be firing away. But they, they did. you know. They didn't completely abandon the run, but he continued to trust Trevor Lawrence. And, and to Trevor Lawrence's credit, man, he, he was able to do everything that had to happen in half number two to will his team back into it.
4: Did you allow your mind to go where so many of ours did, watching what Brian Dayball is doing and thinking, hmm, how would this have looked in Chicago? Uh,
3: to, to some extent. Because, I mean, you know, I think to, to your point, it's not like the, the pass catchers for the Giants – are, are anything to write home about. They're, they're more effective than the ones here in Chicago. And the line of scrimmage, the running back position, certainly better playmakers there. You know, not, not difficult to find a better defense there in New York either. So that, you know, Brian Dayball would be in a much different circumstance if he were coaching and calling plays for the Bears than what he's dealing with in New York. But then you also do have this quarterback in Daniel Jones who is now being utilized in a different way but has also – has this this file cabinet full of years of seeing NFL defenses taking lumps from certain NFL defensive coordinators, and so you've got all that stored up data that he is in a position to capitalize on as well. And so, you know, there, there's still a ceiling for Daniel Jones. I don't think we need to, you know, we necessarily need to act like he's Josh Allen, but you do see where his his carries doubled this season. The, the athleticism that was showcased at times, almost accidentally at times early in his career, and then in New York they're like, oh, he's he he's, he's kind of stumbles around a little bit, but he's got legitimate foot speed. He can run a little bit. And then here's the Dayball comes in and says, no, th- this is a running QB. We are willing and able to use that as a true part of our offense. And oh, by the way, we do have one of the most combustible weapons in the national football league at running back as well. And Saquon Barkley's playing the best football he's ever played in his entire life. He's a better Saquon Barkley than he was at Penn State. He's a better Saquon Barkley than he was in his initial her- healthy seasons with the Giants. He runs with a physicality now that he has never run with in his entire life. One of those goal line touchdown runs that he's finished would not have been a touchdown from the Saquon Barkley of of three or four plus seasons ago, but there's a determination that he runs the ball with now that, that I think his offense feeds off of his teammates feed off of. And between he and this running quarterback, they're both comfortable saying, you know what? Maybe our offense is a little high schoolish, a little collegiate in perception, Mm -hmm. but we're making it work, man. And it sets our defense up to take the field with energy.
5: I'm guessing because of the Seahawks rivalry, you actually know about Brock Purdy. Right. Are, 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 is what we're seeing representative of what you saw of him in college, or does all the, 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 the glory go to the skill position guys and Shanahan for getting the 49ers where they're at?
3: Well, I was talking about timelines with a couple of the other quarterbacks. With Brock Purdy, the best football he played at Iowa State, frankly – what was early in his career as the pressure enhanced and the expectations around Brock Purdy enhanced in his Iowa State career, his his performance began to plateau and in critical moments in games. You know, obviously, they, they play my mama to the Iowa Hawkeyes on an annual basis. And, you know, frankly, Iowa State's coaching staff was more excited about the quarterback they had this season in the Cy game, I called on the Big Ten Network, than the Brock Purdy that they've been dealing with the last couple of seasons because he had begun playing tighter, because he very quickly in his Iowa State career became this guy where – Iowa State fans were talking Heisman. They were talking about maybe he's going early to the NFL. And then against the best defenses, whether that was in the Big 12 or when he would face Iowa, he would just fall flat. He would consistently throw the ball to the opponent or throw it into the dirt. The athleticism that was there early in his career – was sort of a, a fallback option for him, where when he did get uncertain, I was talking about certain quarterbacks who do you know tighten up after they have an early mistake or throw an early interception, and then they get really hesitant and indecisive in those moments, both as passers and as runners, and Brock Purdy would just sort of go to sort of the crutch of tucking the ball and trying to run, and he's not, he's not a Daniel Jones-level athlete. He's certainly not a Justin Fields-level athlete, but he is a mobile quarterback, and everything towards the last couple of seasons of his career at Iowa State just really fell flat. And he, he's a guy who I'm, I'm happy for him because I like to see, you know, true talent realized. And and, and he is a guy with, with NFL caliber talent who's got elite level talent all around him and maybe the best play caller in football who is completely in his bag right now, Kyle Shanahan. So, you know, credit to the, the 49ers for being able to, to compete continue to put Brock Purdy in comfortable scenarios and credit to him as well for playing what I view as the most, the most confident version of quarterback he's played since maybe his sophomore year college.
5: So we're going to have the Kevin Warren press conference. We're also going to have a conversation with Kevin Warren. What are some of the oh, things you're okay. hoping to hear from Kevin Warren? And
3: what would you want to know? Um, so, okay. Two part question for, for what, what I would be hoping to hear it seems to me that it would be difficult to be far down the road with specificity on, on the Arlington Heights project because he just, you know, he was the big 10 commissioner up until a few days ago. So that there's only, you know, obviously, you know, he folks around him, you you know, and he's been in Chicago for a few years now. So he's had the opportunity to do some due diligence on the bears and their future and, and the Arlington Heights project. So he's, certainly has had the ability to be knowledgeable of it. But now that he is signed on the dotted line, there's, there's new information, new details that are available to him and you know, things that wouldn't be available to the public about the structure of that. And I just wonder how deep down the road he'll be able to go right off the bat today with his first public comments as Bears president and CEO with that specifically because that is not, you know in addition to draft picks, current roster and, and Ryan polls and everything else, but from a business perspective, the future of the Chicago Bears, their financial viability, how the city of Chicago is affected by this potential, I wonder right off the bat. Obviously, he'll be able to compare this potential to what he was able to do in the Twin Cities and leading that for the Minnesota Vikings. But you know, how, how specific is he in a position to be right now? Perhaps how chesty is he in a position to be about Arlington Heights and, and, and the, the potential to get out of Chicago? And has he either been empowered by or even urged to talk in sort of confident terms about the Bears leaving the city? I wonder what the tone will be with that or the very easy way to go about it, which would really be rightful and make a lot of sense, would be for, for Kevin Warren to say, well, this is day one, <laughs> you know, and, and that's certainly an important task for me, for the Bears, I got a lot of due diligence I need to do. I need to be very methodical. One of his favorite words is methodical. He needs to be very methodical in his approach to figure those things out. So I, I'm, I'm curious. I, I will have my ears perked up when Arlington Heights comes up just to see, you know, how he, how Bears Brass are, are handling that portion of it.
5: Big Ant, we appreciate the time and the information. Thank you so much for joining us. All
3: right, fellas. Talk to you later.
4: That's Anthony Heron. We will turn our attention to the Cubs next. It was exactly what you want the weekend to be for them, I think. A restoration of some optimism that's Pretty reasonable right now. Evan Altman, the editor-in-chief for CubsInsider.com, was there, I think, the whole time, and he will give us his firsthand impressions of what went on. We are counting down to the Kevin Warren press conference that we are going to carry live here on The Score, sponsored by your local Hyundai dealer. So don't go anywhere. We're Bernstein and Holmes. You have The Score.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.
1: Bernstein and Holmes Middays 10-2 to 2. On Sports Radio
2: 670 The Score And 670thescore.com In Odyssey Station We're
4: going in looking to make a playoff spot I think uh, the difficulty in that Is there's a lot of good teams in the National League so, maybe our best answer is try to win our division. We really solidified, we've improved our offense. We've really we've got excellent defense. We have a lot of pitching depth. If uh, things are going well in July, I look to add a player or two to keep us on top and I'm looking forward to getting back to the playoffs. that's that's the goal. That's Tom Ricketts, who was on the score with Mully and Haw. He was the tone setter for a fun weekend. So what did it all mean? What did what was? What was symbolized? What got started? What was all that energy? Here to give us his thoughts on it is Evan Altman. He's on Twitter at D.EvanAltman, editor of CubsInsider.com. Joins us on the score hotline presented by Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. And as always, you should be watching on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Chicago670. The score. So, Evan, what was that?
2: Well, um you know it was uh it was uh, i guess it's better than saying biblical losses right i know uh, a part of what wasn't in there uh, mr ricketts did share that the plan is to at least approach uh, the competitive balance tax thresholds here moving forward um you know to to what extent that uh, will be true or, or to how how close we'll get will it go over i don't know but it it was it felt easier to believe at least when when you hear him saying, hey, we've got more moves to make, and then Trey Mancini gets signed on Saturday evening, and, and we hear them connected to uh, old friend Brad Chafin, and, uh, Andrew Chafin. Brad Chafin is a guy I went to high school with. Him I don't too. Think they're connected. Um, but, yeah, and he, he he probably comes real cheap. They can get him on a minimum deal, I'm sure. Um, hasn't thrown in a while. But uh, I think Matt Moore, there's some others. you know. So you start hearing this, and, and then you start looking back on some of the reports that, you know, hey, they really did kick the tires on on Carlos Correa when things fell apart and they were they were in kind of late on Devers and it you know the the narrative has shifted it's not I don't think anybody actually thinks yeah the Cubs are definitely division favorites by any stretch but it feels more
5: legitimate than it did even two weeks ago Evan, the crazy part—I'm watching you on social, and I know that, that part of this is you having—I think you described it on Cubs Insider as having to strangle your your fandom and and tie it up in the basement. But I saw a lot of joy from you at being in the convent, at the convention. Where did that joy come from? What was it that drew it out? Yeah, I mean,
2: there's. I think there's a couple different levels to that, right? Part of it is the the convention hasn't, this is the first time in three years, right? And so there's a lot of folks, um, you know, in the circles that I run in, that could be just folks that I know from Twitter, that could be other, you know, Cubs writers, podcasters, um, you know, folks from 670, I ran into Mark Grody, um, haven't had a chance to meet Mark in person before. Um, he, I think he was, you know, he's a bigger fan of mine. I think that was more like, giving him that honor but um you know <laughs> book shambi um tony Andraki from marquee you know people who i've known in some capacity but either haven't seen in two or three years or maybe never have actually met in person there are some players that i've i've gotten to know who what was really cool with that is even if everyone from like book shambi ethan roberts um matt mervis some other guys tucker barnhart Got my Brownsburg uh, sweatshirt on, right? Tucker's a, a Brownsburg guy. My son has taken hitting lessons from his dad for six years, and and to to see them experience their first Cubs convention and to kind of talk about that and the feel that they got because I think we get jaded, you know, from a fan perspective. Where it's easy for me to kind of write in a certain direction, but then to hear the positivity that's coming out of that, to be able to share a buddy of mine from high school, see him twice in twenty five years. Now works for the Cubs. I run into him randomly walking across the convention hall. You get a big hug from these people. And so outside of just the, what the team is doing, it, it's so easy sometimes, I think, for us to break it down into the metrics and and to look at platoon matchups at first base and to forget that, you know, hey, a lot of folks are there based on the pure emotions of it. That doesn't win you ballgames, but it is a pretty cool reason to be there for a couple days at the, at the Sheridan Grand.
4: Presuming a little bit of a rebound from Trey Mancini and maybe a new ballpark and and whatever you pencil them in for. I haven't looked at at Zips or, or Steamer projections right now, but say it's 20 to 25 home runs. They need every one of those, and I still think the way they're designed, they need more Pop they need more instant offense rather than having to string a series of events together to score runs, but it does if nothing else with the Hosmer signing and this signing, they're raising the floor a bit
2: yeah I think that's that's absolutely it right you have look at a guy like Cody Bellinger, right his offensive numbers have been down. We know what he can do um or what he has done. I don't know about what he can do necessarily but but he's also you know, if you look at the group that they put together, they're at first base. You've improved probably defensively, certainly offensively. Again, you know what you're getting. You're not talking about MVP-level performance, but guys who are going to be league-average-ish run producers, which relative to last year is a big improvement. You look at Bellinger with the glove out in center. That's a big improvement. Look what they've done up the middle. And and I do think with some of these Some of the left-handed guys, I think Hosmer actually benefits more than anyone from the shift because of his high ground ball rate. A lot of people talk about that being a bad thing. Um, It's not great, right? You don't like a guy who's hitting 56% grounders, but I think he'll actually benefit probably more, relatively speaking, than even most of the left-handed hitters. Mancini being a right-handed guy, that's going to play better at Wrigley with the pop. Um, Again, Dansby Swanson being in there. So there's, there's a few things they've upgraded. Did they do enough? I don't really think so especially after and I, I believe it was the last time I was on here we talked about them not really following through on the desire to add more offense but I do think they put themselves in a position where as you said Dan they've got they've they've raised the floor and now if they get a few breakouts or they, or they get a couple guys who really bounce back like Bellinger then I, I think the ceiling gets a little bit higher as well but um, there's they're limited but at least I think they avoid those long skids that we've seen the last couple of
5: years. To, to speak to Dan's point, you played around with the lineup a little bit this weekend. You were drawing up a Cubs lineup. What do you think looks the best on paper to maximize their offensive production?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I think one way or the other, you know, you see the two middle infield guys there at the top of the order. Um, You'll know, probably Horner is more of a just because of the speed, because of the contact bat. You know, not a ton of power, but he can reach base, you know, get him on, get him over. Maybe Swanson at two. Then you're looking at maybe Happen, Suzuki in there. Um, I, You know, Suzuki, I think we need to see a bounce back from him in order for him to be a true middle of the order kind of a guy. But he is someone who has shown that ability to hit the ball out of the yard. Um, you know, and then you can kind of from there, I think it's sort of a toss up to me. I mean, I guess you can work bottom up, you know, Barnhart or Gomes at the bottom of the order. Uh, Mancini probably in there at DH. Looks like Hosmer will be the starting, you know, kind of everyday uh, first base guy. And then, you know, I think then it's it's kind of that wisdom, morale, um, you know, kind of there in the in the bottom a little bit. But both of those guys have a little bit of power. You know, I think Patrick Wisdom is the kind of guy who, on a good team, and this is why I was kind of surprised he wasn't actually moved last year to a team that, that needed that little extra edge and pop to kind of carry them. But there's a guy who, you know, if he bounces back a little bit again, supplies that, and you're putting that in the bottom half of the order, that's not bad. But there's a lot of balance that comes in there. I think you can go, again, right-left, you can play the matchups a little bit better, and your lineup is just more consistent on a day-in, day-out basis than what we've had you know, lately to watch.
4: I wonder how much right-left they're going to do, because you mentioned Wisdom and Morrell. Morrell's going to be sort of a Ben Zobris type super sub, is at least what Rossi said to us. And when they start looking at first base, DH, third base, probably be, and, and maybe a quarter outfield spot here and there, are going to be the places where they're going to look for some of those advantages.
2: Yeah, I, I, the the third base thing is a little bit funky. Um, you know, and I still think that's an area where, you know, the, the, I mentioned Devers earlier, you know, that was a guy who I think everybody sort of looked at like, okay, he checks every single box. Like if there's somebody they're going to go get, it's in. And, then, you know, a week later he gets uh, extended. And so, you know, I, I think the other key is, is that, it's that run prevention model, right? They are looking at saying, hey, if we can not – and it's not simply the defense. I mean, obviously that's a huge part of it. But looking at these pitchers that they've got, either whether it's the guys they've brought in, um, the ones they're trying to bring up, and if you look at some of the numbers and, and how those guys perform with certain catchers, I think that's a big deal, not just the catchers' defensive metrics themselves, but how well do those pitchers trust those catchers, trust their game calling, what they're going to be able to do, and then how does that performance, you talk about, you know, we knew last year they had a rotation and a staff in general. They gave up a lot of contact, a lot of balls on the ground. You need to have a pretty elite defense to be able to turn those into outs. So they've done that as well. So I, I think they're they're honestly looking at this saying, Hey, whatever we didn't add in power in run scoring from an offensive standpoint, we're going to try to make up for that by stifling the runs a little bit more on the defensive side.
5: Yeah, but they're they're kidding about the Nick Madrigal taking reps at third base Stop. thing, right? Stop.
2: I, I don't know if I don't know if they're kidding, but I don't think it's something that they need to be thinking about very much.
5: <laughs> oh. He, he just can't don't know
2: throw.
4: How to... He can't throw, and his hands aren't great either.
2: Yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. That, I, I feel like that's one of those where you're saying, hey, hey, Red Sox, you guys, you guys need an infielder, right? Hey, magical. He's uh, he's taking reps at third. What do you think? <laughs> that's uh, I, I feel like that's being put out there for maybe purposes other than because uh, I, I just don't know what purpose that serves to kind of come out around the time of Cubs convention or whatever, and we're seeing those. That that would. I just don't know that that's a great fit. Unless they're just saying, hey, man, he's going to him saying, what, what can I do? I know we got the middle infield tied up, and he's going to the team asking, what can I do to get more time? Where can I fit in? And they're saying, hey, dude, go get some reps at third.
5: Yeah, that's a really tricky – anyway, I'll move on from that. Yeah. Evan, how did you think Cubs ownership did at Cubs convention? Um, You know, I will
2: – I'll give – Tom and Laura Ricketts credit for for being there, uh, for for reviving the panel. That uh, you know, in addition to just the convention in general being canceled last two years, you know, they did not have a panel in either 19 or 20, right? Um, Ostensibly because uh, the surveys, you know, that like the exit survey said that it was boring. Um, You know, I think a lot of us might tend to believe that they simply didn't want to have to go out there and address some of the team's direction and spending and that sort of thing. But I'll applaud them for that, being out there. Um, at the same time, I you know, again, I know uh, Tom was on, you know, he's on the air with, uh, with your station on Friday before the convention really kicked off. And I listened to the interview, and, and I didn't hear anything at the panel that was really different. It still felt like he kind of had his list of five or six talking points that he ran down. Um, but at the same time, it's, it, they have made some moves that it's like, It feels more plausible, at least, than some of what people have maybe heard from him and and sort of immediately pushed aside in the past. So, uh, you know, I was pretty meh in general on it, I guess, but that's better than being angry about it and thinking that he's sharing stuff that's just completely untrue.
4: Evan Altman, thanks so much, as always. Appreciate the perspective.
2: No problem, guys. Thanks for having me on.
4: Wu-Tang! that is Evan Altman of cubsinsider.com. We have high noon coming up next. I have really important information if you are a Chicago area fisherman, fisher person. This is you, you you I'm not kidding. This is not just some sort of bait and switch tease. No pun intended. You you really do have to hear this.
5: I have a story that is a, a, a very serious and also very absurd story about an ex-Chicago athlete.
0: We'll be back this way on Monday. We'll settle this then. Right there, out in the street, in front of the Palace alone. Yeah, right.
4: When? High noon? It's high noon on a Tuesday that kind of feels like a Monday. Talked a lot of football to start. A big, busy weekend. Anthony Heron gave us his thoughts, and Evan Altman gave us his roundup of the Cubs convention and their recent
5: acquisition. It's time. Uh, when- Robin Leonard was the Blackhawks goalie. I found him to be really interesting. He had a really interesting story. I appreciated how vulnerable he was talking about a lot of different things that were going on with him. So when I saw this story cross the last couple of days, I was concerned and intrigued. The headline in the Las Vegas Review-Journal, Leonard sued for nearly $4 million months before bankruptcy filing. Months before Golden Knights goalie Robin Lennar and his wife Danya filed for bankruptcy in a Nevada court, a Wisconsin company sued the NHL player for $3.9 million over the alleged failure to repay a business loan. On December 30th, the Lennars filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy, citing up to $50 million worth of debt noted to be business-related. Noted among the various companies and people the lenders owe money to are multiple entries under different versions of Solar Code, located in multiple states, including Nevada and Arizona, and Eclipse Service Inc., a Wisconsin company. Eclipse, in June, filed suit against Solar Code, in Wisconsin, in a Wisconsin court, in relation to what the company claims was Solar Cove failing to repay the loan they provided to the Lenners, huh? the suit specifically names both Robin Lennar and Michael Lennar, the player's father. The court documents say a repayment plan was agreed to by both sides on January 13th, 2022, for Solar Cove to make multiple payments. There were multiple payments ranging between 30,000 to 60,000 equaling $915,000 then 3 million was to be paid in four annual installments. I mean, it gets yeah. really really bad. Now, good. he signed a 5-year $25 million contract with the Knights back in 2020 and there's also an exotic pet farm. Like there's apparently like a million dollars in exotic pets that the Lenners have. So I, I know that he's dealt with a lot when it comes to, to mental mental health I, and so I'm obviously worried about him but people are owed their money and they deserve their money so it is something to pay attention to as you see it cross your bottom lines or in your news feeds.
4: This from CBS News there is a new study out of the journal Environmental Research just published eating. One freshwater fish caught in a U.S. river or lake is the equivalent of drinking a month's worth of water contaminated with toxic forever chemicals.
5: Oh, no. The
4: invisible chemicals called PFAs were first developed in the 40s to resist water and heat. We're talking about nonstick pans, textiles, fire suppression, foams, and food packaging. But the indestructibility of PFAs, per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances means the pollutants have built up over time in the air, soil, lakes, rivers, food, drinking water, and our bodies. There have been growing calls for stricter regulations for PFAs linked to a range of serious health issues, liver damage, high cholesterol, reduced immune responses, and several kinds of cancer. To find out PFAs contamination in locally caught fish, a team of researchers has analyzed more than 500 samples from rivers and lakes across the U.S. between 2013 and 2015. So this is even... Going back a little bit, not including another almost decade of build-up here, and the worst, the Great Lakes. So be be super super careful. The oh meat,
5: man, Jabari Parker is going to be hard. All
4: those Great Yeah fish in the Great Lakes are are just. They're not good for you. You've got to know this, and this is everyone's like, "Well, what about smelt? What about perch?" It's not even the shorter lifespan, lower on the food chain. It's obviously your your lake trout and your your bigger brown trout and chinooks and kings steelheads and all that. But they, they're finding it even in the other fish. So just be super super careful. And find out all the information you can. And as I always say, talk to your doctor about some of this stuff as this research is being done. But if you if you want to eat fish, generally it is ocean-caught fish where some of these chemicals are more widely dispersed and or very carefully farmed aquacultured fish. But the the, 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 the trout and salmon caught in the Great Lakes, I would say right now, I, I'm 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 am d- done because this is this is really really scary stuff. We got poisoned fish. <laughs> yeah, we do, <laughs> and we have the press conference to introduce Kevin Warren, the Bears CEO and President. Coming up in just a moment, we will carry it live and in full, and then look forward to following up, having a conversation with him live on these airwaves. Bernstein and Holmes on the score.